Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Good morning. I'm glad that you're all here. I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure to continue our sermon series on this rock, where we describe the values that we've built this church on and that we live by in this church. And this morning, I have the pleasure of speaking on the spiritual value of repentance. Before we get started, I want to just lay out a few definitions of things because I'm going to be mentioning the same three words a lot today and just want to make sure that we're all on the same page as to what I mean. I'm not actually citing where I got these definitions from, partially because I just think it's kind of weird to cite a definition. I'm like... Congratulations, you know what the word means. It's literally what it means. I, why do I have to say that you're the one who taught me? It's, I don't thank Gregory Math every time I say one plus one equals two. It just, it's, that's the answer. Congratulations. So if you really want to know these definitions, you could come up. I, I can find, I think, where I got them. But the, the first one here is performance. So when I'm speaking about performance today, I'm referring to the act of striving for perfection of thought, word, achievement, or appearance caused by the underlying belief that love is contingent upon our actions. So performance in a spiritual sense then would be caused by the lie that God's love is reliant on our ability to be perfect. That's what would cause spiritual performance. Second is confession. Confession is the acknowledgement of wrongdoing in a public or private setting. So for Christians, this would look like the admission of sinfulness, something that happens over and over again, probably should be practiced daily, if not maybe look at why you're not practicing it daily. And last is repentance. Repentance is a change in the way that you think that leads to a change in the way that you act. In Greek, the word that we get repentance from literally meant about face or to turn around. So going completely, I was going in one direction and now I'm going in another direction. So repentance is a change in the way I think that leads to a change in the way I act. Now, if you've been with us before, we typically read a passage of scripture and then discuss it. We're going to do things slightly different today. I promise we will be looking at the Bible, don't worry. But instead of doing our normal reading scripture, I actually want to ask a couple of questions to you and have you get in groups and discuss them. These two questions, can you think for me an an example, an experience of when you felt the need to perform? And can you think of one where you did not feel the need to perform? Remembering, again, the performance as the definition that I laid out where we're striving, there's some pressure 
to be perfect in either thought, action, word, or deed. So if you can circle up where you're at, groups of three or four, and this doesn't have to be super profound. It can be silly things like I had felt the need to perform when I was the first time I ever led my spike ball group. And that was just, I felt like oh, I, I need to do this perfectly. And anyone who's been to my spike ball group in the last year knows that I no longer feel any need to perform and it's very evidenced by the <laughs> lack of effort that I put into it. Um, yeah, so if you could just circle up for a couple of minutes and then we can uh, talk back. Living in San Francisco, to be in San Francisco is to be well acquainted with the pressure to perform. Performance is definitely present and it's relevant everywhere, but I don't think I've been anywhere where that pressure is as in your face as in this city. To, to be in the city is to be face-to-face -face with a pressure to perform. I guarantee that we've all felt it very often, a pressure to achieve. And what I want to point out today are two ways that we think incorrectly that lead to us feeling the pressure of performance. The first is audience, and the second is assumption. You could tell that I had Tom's help in my <laughs> sermon prep because if I'm being alliterative, then something's up. That's definitely not for me. Alliteration, definitely not my strong suit. But we're going to start with audience here. The first question to ask yourself when you really feel the weight of performance on you and you feel, it almost can feel like you're wearing a weight vest and it's, it's super heavy and it can also at the same time somehow feel like there's nothing in your stomach. So you just have, you're just like jittery and you feel like you can't sit still and there's just so much it's simultaneously weight and weightlessness at the same time and it's not comfortable at all when you feel pressure of performance mounting the first question to ask is is my audience wrong am i considering the wrong audience right now we need to be considering this is somewhat of a spoiler but we need to be considering that our ultimate audience is God. It's not the people around us. Our ultimate audience isn't, it's not Amanda. It's not Tim. As, as much as I can sometimes feel I need to perform for them, they're not my audience. Performance shows up in a wide variety of areas in our lives. First thing that came to my mind was my job. This can show up Performance can show up in your job, and, and you guys even spoke about your job, where I've, I feel a real, there's an expectation to perform. This can show up as thoughts that say, mm, well, my job doesn't pay enough. I, I can't let people know how much that I make because that's embarrassing. I, I, I need to be making more money than what I'm making right now. It can show up as I'm not progressing up the corporate ladder fast enough. I haven't, I've been with this company for a year and I haven't been promoted. What's, people are going to think, I'm gonna put that on my resume and employers are gonna see why were you with this company for three years and you never got promoted? What's wrong with you? I, I need to be moving up in life. 
I'm not learning enough where I'm at can be another way. I, I'm going to have nothing to show for these years of my life that I've spent in this job, and I haven't, I haven't actually progressed at all. These things can all be on us when we're sitting in our job, and ultimately, your audience is wrong. The audience is wrong there. The second place is relationships. This, this is super common. People thinking, I, I'm, I'm single, but I, I need to get into a relationship because I need people to know that I'm worthy of love. I need for pe- if, if I'm not in a relationship, then people are going to realize that I'm not actually worthy of love. So I need to be in a relationship. Could look like uh, my partner isn't attractive enough and people are going to think that that's the best I can do. I need to be better. Or it can look like I'm not attractive enough for my partner. It can look like, well, my partner is, is way more attractive than me, so therefore I need to obsess over my appearance, over my actions, because if I'm not perfect, then they'll leave me. The audience is wrong. Another area would be your spiritual life. Your spiritual life is kind of what we're talking about this morning. It's super common in our spiritual life to believe that we're not performing and we need to perform more. This can show up as, I don't read the Bible, I don't pray enough, I, 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 I need to be doing more, I, I need to be doing more, or it can show up sneakily as, well, I've, I've sinned, but I can't actually let other people see that because if they see that, then they'll see that I'm a failure they'll see that I can't perform, and I can't let them see that I can't perform. It can also show up as the thought that is, my church isn't big enough. There's not hundreds of people in this room, therefore God must not be present, God must not be moving here, because if he was, then there would be more people. I need to do more to make sure that there's more people in this room. Your audience is wrong. Another area would be your hobbies. Your hobbies are supposed to be your free time where you actually let loose and you have so much enjoyment and you have freedom. But it can be as simple as I don't have enough hobbies. And the fact that I don't have enough hobbies mean, means that people are going to think that I'm boring. I don't have more things to do. They're going to think that I'm not skilled. If I was more skilled, then I'd have more hobbies. I'd have more things that I could do. It could also look and probably most commonly looks like I can't try that hobby because I'm, I'm pretty sure I would fail at that hobby. I don't think I'd be good. I don't think I'd be good at that. Have you noticed that we, we tend to have at least a, a mild fear of failing, but we have a crippling fear of letting other people see us fail? I know for, for myself, I will look at something and say, oh, I, I might not be that good at but the real problem is that other people would see that I'm not that good. Other people would see that I'm pretty bad at that, at that and, and I, I don't think I could take that. Both of my siblings are amazing artists. They're incredible. I uh, think that my brother literally sometimes teaches an art class. My sister is constantly making things, but not me. I am <laughs> not an artist at all. I, I generally pick up skills really quickly, except for basketball, but um, 
I think that uh, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> I'm not that tall. I can't jump super high, so, so maybe that, that makes sense to me. But art has always been this mystery where I could never produce the thing that I wanted to produce. I, I don't really remember if I was if I was made fun of for it as a kid, there's probably a, a good chance because kids can be really mean, but I, I don't have any specific memories about it. What I do remember is that I could never produce anything in art that I was proud of. I would always look at something and say, I don't like the way this turned out. I wish it had turned out differently. And that led to me just completely ignoring it as a hobby when my friends took art in high school, I took more AP classes because I knew that that was an area I could perform. They wouldn't see me fail in an AP class. If I took art, they would probably see me fail. And that wasn't something that could happen. I, I avoided it all through, really all through my life and into my adult life as well. My journal I have right here has two drawings in it. The first one, the first one is, is this drawing right here which is uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. I think it's ironic that the title right next to it is There is Room for Mistakes. And I'm actually really proud of that drawing. It's probably one of the best drawings I've ever done. It actually looks like a bridge. You can tell that, <laughs> that the sun is either rising or setting. I don't know that I really much cared. But you can also tell that I liked it because just a couple days later, one page later in my journal, you'll see another drawing. And this drawing looks like this. And I tried, it's kind of small, but I tried to, to illustrate let, Jesus saying, let the children come to me. And it turns out that faces are really hard. And people are incredibly difficult to draw. And it was kind of small, and definitely people in the back couldn't see, so if I was to describe it in a flattering way, I would say that this drawing looks as if Jesus was handing a flower to a penguin. That is maybe the, maybe the best hope I could have for someone looking at that drawing. If aliens came back and they looked at my journal, they would think, this is a small child attempting to draw an animal and potentially a religious figure, I'm not sure. But you'll never, you'll notice I said there's two drawings in my journal. If you look through the rest of my journal, you'll never find another drawing because something in me at that time said, nope, I can, now I can never let someone look at my journal because then they'll know how much of a failure I am. I can never show this to anything. I'm not good at this. It just instantly clicks in. And the funny thing is that's because I'm thinking about other people. Again, my audience is wrong. And all of a sudden, I have an inability to draw in, in my journal all of a sudden. If you've talked to me about cooking, there's a good chance that you've heard me say that cooking, my love for cooking stems from the fact that it's one of the few spheres in my life where my fear of failure does not apply. For whatever reason, I've always loved cooking and I never felt like I was afraid to make a mistake. It was okay. 
what I realized this year actually is that I've always had the right audience when cooking. I, for, for me, cooking has always been something that God and I do together and that's it, that it's never been for anyone else. Even when I'm cooking with friends and I'm cooking for other people, for me, it's always just felt as if it was me and God and that was it. There was, there was no one else. The, the real difference with cooking from other hobbies, interests that I have is that I, I understand the right audience in the context of cooking. Your audience, your audience matters. When we think that our audience is the people around us, we slip into comparison and we slip into performance. But when we remember that our audience is actually not the people around us, but is actually the, our Heavenly Father, then that comparison begins to slip away and the pressure to perform can begin to slip away. My brother got married last December and he and his wife, Allie, asked a few of us, close friends, family, to give a toast at his rehearsal dinner or at their rehearsal dinner. And if you don't know my brother and where he lives, he lives in this community of really amazing believers who chase wholeheartedly after God. And the result is that they spend a lot of time crafting and sharing beautiful words of encouragement with one another. It is completely inspiring and also embarrassingly intimidating to be around. And I remember hearing him say, oh yeah, I want you to give a toast. Can you please give a toast to my rehearsal dinner? And I immediately thought, oh, in front of these people? <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. And I was really busy before the wedding and I remember just every time sitting down trying to write that toast, I was struggling, I couldn't do it, I couldn't get comfortable with it. What was happening was my love for my brother was clashing against this broken part of my humanity that said, you have to be perfect, this has to be perfect, it needs to be perfect, and I remember really wrestling with it to the point where I actually talked to my mom about it when I was in North Carolina where they got married right before the wedding, just a couple days before, I talked to my mom and I said, I was, I'm having a really hard time with this. And to my surprise, my mom said, actually, I'm feeling really insecure about my speech as well. And I, I, I don't know what I'm gonna say. We, we both shared with one another that we acutely felt the need for our words to be impeccably selected and our stories to be artfully crafted when we gave this toast and ultimately came to the conclusion that our pride was just completely at the wheel that that we were allowing both of us i i think if i would speak for my mom i can certainly speak for me both of us were believing that somehow the love that my brother had for me is contingent upon my ability to perform for him. I was believing the lie that specifically says, if I can't perform for my brother as well as the people in his community, then he won't love me as much as he loves them. That, that is what I was sitting in and that is why I was struggling so much to write this was because I felt like it, that my entire relationship with my brother was on the line, which is absolutely ridiculous. That's not true, but it is what we think. And if, if you're like me, then immediately you would ask, but okay, isn't, 
Ryan, is, isn't your brother actually the audience? Isn't he literally the audience in this scenario? You're saying that he's not your audience, but he, he is literally the person that you're talking to. And that's true. It's important to note, though, that this is about whose approval we're seeking. It's our physical audience can actually be different and often is different. It's about whose approval that we're seeking. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So again, it's about whose approval we're seeking. The audience might physically be Ryan and Allie in this scenario, but it's not their approval that I'm looking for. It's not their approval that I, that I actually need. The second question to ask yourself when you're feeling the real weight of performance is, is my assumption wrong? Do I have the wrong assumption here? Am I believing, if my audience is God, am I believing that my performance somehow dictates the love that I am able to receive? Is that my assumption? Because if it is, that assumption is wrong. The last, last week, Emily was, was speaking, and, and during our discussion portion, this is funny because I was thinking when I was writing this, well, I know that there's going to be two Brendans in attendance, but hopefully they won't be sitting right next to each other, so they'll know which one I'm referring to, but they're literally sitting directly in line with one another. So Brendan, last week, during, uh, during that discussion, mentioned something that I, I found really interesting and I really resonated with, he, he mentioned that it's really strange that God uses people to do his work. If you remember, we were talking about the body and each, each member having a different function. And, and Brendan called out that, well, God is perfect and he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful, but yet his church is full of humans who are messy and can't get it right and are weak. And it's strange to see because, as you called it, he could have just assigned a Jesus clone to each, to each person to make sure that we never got it wrong. He could have just said, here you go, I, I'm going to give you Jesus so that you, you never make a mistake and you never make, a, you never make an error, you never make anyone upset. But that's not actually the way that he designed us. It's not the way he designed the church. That's not his perfect plan. He literally designed the church taking failure into account. He knows about the mess, and it doesn't mess up his perfect plan for us to be allowed to fail. It does not actually interfere with his plan. And this had me thinking about heaven and what perfection will look like in heaven. So we know that the Bible says that humanity will be, will be made perfect in heaven, but I was thinking, okay, well, what, what does perfection look like? Because the, the Greek word for perfection that, that they used was called teleos, which, which means complete. It doesn't actually impri- imply freedom from error. 
it implies the achievement of a distant objective. So could it be that, that my perfection is not going to look the way that I think it looks because the thing that's going to happen is I'm going to, humanity is going to reach the ultimate purpose for which we were created. Now we know that we will be without sin in heaven, but we also know that we won't be God. So that leads an interesting area of, okay, I, I forget my keys all the time right now. Will I still forget my keys in heaven? Because that's not a sin at all. The, me forgetting my keys is, is not a sin. Will I still trip over cracks in the sidewalk as I'm trying to walk because I'm not looking where I'm going? That's not a sin. Will I still not be the world's greatest artist because I was never meant to be the world's greatest artist? I don't think the Bible is completely explicit about one way or the other with this, so I think it's open open for interpretation. I don't want to get too much into the philosophy of it. If you want to have a conversation afterwards, we can. But I just find this concept to be incredibly freeing. The concept that maybe the ultimate purpose of creation was never to be without any sort of error whatsoever, that the ultimate purpose of creation wasn't actually to be perfection in this human sense that we think of. And if I was never made to be perfect, then why on earth is my assumption that I need to be perfect in order to earn God's love? I think I promised we would come back to stories from the beginning. So I had a theory, and I, th I believe that it actually seemed to be true based on certainly what Josie said, and, and also I think, uh, Brendan, what you said as well. The idea that I had is that we feel a real pressure to perform when we're unconvinced of the love that the people around have for us. When, when we're not sure whether or not we're loved, we feel a real pressure to perform. And on the contrary, when we are fully convinced of the love that is in the room, that the love that is shared, then we're actually freed up to say, I don't need to perform right now because it doesn't actually matter what I do. I'll still be loved regardless of what I do. And the Bible touches on this in numerous occasions. It tells us that we're not saved by our works. The first is in, well, first of my examples is in Romans 3 verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So again, works of the law in this context, meaning the things that we do, our, our attempts to be, to be perfect and to follow exactly the law. Also in Titus 3, we see he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Probably the most famous is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one 
may boast. Again, again and again, the Bible reminds us, look, this isn't about works. And again and again, we forget that it's not about works. I forget that it's not about works. Again and again, I come back to the idea, God will only love me if I'm able to perform. And that is wrong. That underlying assumption is wrong. We are not loved for our works. We are loved in spite of our works. In spite of the way that we act, we are still loved by God. It is actually about more than our works. It's about him, ultimately. It's about him loving us in spite of who we are and him knowing us in spite of who we are. Now, Paul would often, in the Bible, especially in Romans, he would say at this exact point, so I know what you're thinking is if it's not about works, then it doesn't matter what I do, so I should go on sinning. And then he always would say, by no means, right? That's multiple times in Romans we see this, multiple times in the Bible. By no means, the, the actual reason we don't continue sinning is because we realize that that sin is, is driving a wedge in between our relationship with God, and it's, it's causing us to not be able to have access to the relationship that, that we deeply desire. We don't actually aren't able to engage with the love in the way that we need to engage in that love in order to be freed from performance. When we, when we continue sinning, we actually are, are, are realizing that, yes, as I spoke last time, God sees us as sons and daughters, but I'm not going to step into my inheritance I'm, I'm going to allow there to be this wedge in between the two of us, and I'm not going to sit in the presence of the one who loves me. I'm actually going to sit on my own. So we do not want to continue sinning, which leads us to what do we do instead? Because so far, all we've looked at is performance, and all we've looked at is okay, don't think this way, don't think that way, but if I correct my audience and I correct my assumption, will performance just magically melt away? And the answer, honestly, is, is no, it won't. It won't just melt away. The, the thing actually is repentance. Repentance is what leads us away from performance. Many can go to the next slide. This is God's method to battle against performance. The whole idea for this sermon actually was born out of something my brother said to me about a, I don't know, it was a while back, where he said, behavior management and performance are the posture of a child that doesn't know they're loved. Repentance is the posture of a child that knows they're loved. Just let that in, sink in for a second. When we don't know that we're loved, we attempt to perform, we attempt to manage our behavior in order to make sure that we are worthy of love. If, I, if I'm not convinced that I'm loved, then I will attempt to perform in order to earn that love. But on the contrary, when I'm actually fundamentally believing that I'm loved and believing that I'm, an environment of, I'm in an environment of love, then my actual action is repentance. That's what I want. I realize I don't want to do the things that I've been doing. I actually want to do something else. So I think of 
this as performance really is, is like a riptide. And if you've ever surfed or really spent any time in the ocean, the, a riptide just is a current that's going straight out to sea. It's just going directly out. And if you, if you get stuck in a riptide and you attempt to just swim straight back into shore, which is the natural inclination, I'm, gonna, I'm getting sucked out to sea. I do not want to be here. What I want to be is on the beach, and I'm going to swim straight back against it. The, the problem is you will get absolutely nowhere. The current is way stronger than you are. I don't care if you're Michael Phelps. You will not be able to swim better and stronger than this current can pull you backwards. What you actually need to do if you're stuck in a riptide is swim perpendicular to the current. You swim out of the current just directly parallel to the shore. You're not going in any closer to the shore, but you're swimming against, you're going in a different direction. If you remember my definition of repentance from the beginning, it literally means to go in a different direction. I am going one way and I'm doing an about face and I'm going in a different direction. So repentance actually is God's way to battle against performance. The Bible mentions this, actually. Romans 2 says that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Psalms 32, verses 3 through 5, David is saying, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 in the message translation say, going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. So when we actually realize that we are loved, we're released to go into confession, we're released to go into repentance, to to actually do something different, go in a different direction. Confession is about declaring to God and to others that they will see you for exactly who you are, not as how your insecurities tell you you need to be seen. Repentance, then, is the courage to walk this out on a day-to-day basis. If you think back to my story about Ryan's wedding, I didn't actually give the conclusion. What, what ended up happening was I realized pride was at the, the wheel. I realized I had the wrong audience. I had the wrong assumption. And my mom and I both actually ended up confessing that to one another and repenting of that and I was freed from performance, and I was able to speak free from performance and just speak straight to my brother and straight to Allie. And it was an incredibly special moment for for both of us, for all of us, because it was something that's entirely different than what I would have done if I was attempting to just perform for the people who were there. God's kindness is meant to lead us into repentance. That's, That's always what it will do. I was taking a road trip earlier this year, and I was in the, I was in the car, and was, was one of those moments, I knew God was trying to speak to me. It was like, 
my, like my hands were up, they were playing my song, the butterflies were flying away, I was nodding my head like, yeah, and then I felt God tapping my shoulder like, hey, 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 I, I want to I talk to you. So I, so I turned, off, turned off the music, and I had an hour-long argument with God over the next hour of my, of my drive. I was incredibly frustrated by this sin that I was struggling to shake off. No matter what I, could, no matter what I would do, I, I just couldn't seem to get rid of it. And I was frustrated and was just angry with God about it. And what I find is that when I bring frustration to the Father, I'm met with gentle kindness. That's, that's the kindness that's meant to lead to repentance. And, and in that conversation towards the end, I was led by God to admit that I wasn't trusting him with that area of my life. I was led to realize, okay, I'm not trusting you. I want to go a different direction. I want to do an about face right now. I'm repenting, and, and I want to trust you in this area. And God's kindness said, okay, as you learn to trust me, your heavenly father, I also want you to trust your earthly father with this as well. Because I hadn't actually talked to my dad about this. I'd never spoken to my dad about this particular sin. And I said, okay, you want me to, to speak to my dad? But the whole reason I didn't share this with him is because I was afraid that it would hurt him. And I was afraid that it would shatter the image he had of me that it would actually cause my dad to somehow see me differently than the way he saw me at that moment. And God said, I'm calling your bluff. If you want to trust me, you need to trust me with this. Practicing telling your dad, practicing repenting to your dad is the same thing as practicing repentance, is the same thing as practicing trust in me. And so I said, okay. And I ended up having a conversation with my dad and what I was able to do was say, I'm declaring to my dad, I'm declaring to myself, I'm declaring to God that it's more important to me that my dad sees me exactly who I am than it is for him to see the, wor- the version of me that I wish I was. I, I want for my dad to be able to see me exactly as who I am, and I trust that regardless of who I am, my dad will still love me the same way. And, and that is, that, that's very true. My dad does love me exactly the same, even after talking to him about this. If you're listening to this, Dad, happy Father's Day. <laughs> I love you, and I'm glad that you know me. I'm going to close with just this final thought. What I'm contending for today is freedom from performance not freedom from effort. So I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that, okay, if you just have the right audience, you have the right assumption, and then you repent, then it's super easy. You're done. It's, it's, it's nothing. If we think back to the idea of the riptide, the difference is that if performance is the riptide pulling us out and we're swimming directly against that, we will end up in the exact same location even after all of our energy is spent. To swim out of the current still takes a ton of effort. 
it is still incredibly difficult to repent and swim out of that current of performance. The difference is that you actually end up somewhere else. You end up in a place of freedom. You're no longer locked into that current. It is an incredible amount of work because repenting means we need to break off the image that we have of ourselves. To repent is to say, I'm not perfect, and I have to admit that to myself, and I have to admit that to the people around me, and that is beautiful and powerful and so insanely challenging to do. And also doing this specifically in front of other people is incredibly important, and it's absolutely necessary. I, I've described that I've practiced this with my mom, and I've practiced this with my dad. I've also practiced this with Tom, I've practiced this with Tim, I've practiced this with Jordan, and I've practiced this with Emily. I practice this in any and every way that I can get myself to practice it because it's incredibly important for other people to see that. And for me to tell myself that it's okay for other people to see me as not perfect, it's okay for other people to see me exactly who I am and realize that there's freedom in that. To put ourselves in front of other people is, is literally the most vulnerable place that we can put ourselves, but it's also thankfully the most freeing place that we can put ourselves as well. When we, when we repent and we share in front of other people, it is exposing exactly who we are to someone else and trusting that it's okay for someone to see me exactly for who I am. When we do this, we dare to believe that it's not about our performance that God's kind love that leads us to repentance is the same regardless of our actions. And we dare to believe that we're actually God's children and that nothing can actually keep us from his love anymore.